This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, a former principal, host of the podcast Transformative Principal, and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People in Front of You. Greetings. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, today, uh, teacher standards, that one's going to be exciting, ethical standards, (laughs) and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Greetings, Jethro. Hello. I feel like maybe I should play up my West Coast influences a little bit more. (laughs) <laughs> since you state that you're from New York. So I think I might edit our, uh, our introduction a little bit. Well, that sounds fine. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Raymond R.J. Rodriguez. So we're <laughs> reaching out to the gorgeous islands of Hawaii to uh, bring you this podcast. R.J., thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Uh, it's a real delight to have you. And I'm looking forward to our conversation about teacher standards and Uh, the role of ethics in all of this. Let me do a little bit of bio. Um, RJ is a licensing specialist for the Hawaii Teacher Standards Board, HTSB, and is currently the lead for the HTSB work regarding the model code of ethics for educators. He was a classroom teacher for 10 years in a variety of settings, elementary school, middle school, and high school, including charter school experience. He's also spent seven years working for a teacher union providing professional development to educators, which is how we met and uh, got to spend some time together. So let's just start in general terms. Why don't you tell us about your work in Hawaii? Yeah, so um, thank you. Yeah, I, um, I'm very lucky to be with the Teacher Standards Board. My, um, 
my, I guess my career kind of has brought me in different directions for the, with education. Um, loved being a teacher for about 10 years, about 10 years with the union. Um, and what I, what I learned after seeing the classroom and then seeing the classroom through other teachers' eyes um, was that professional development was a great way to kind of move and um, a great way to kind of have a, a wider reach to, to education and have a, a bigger impact. Uh, I learned that, that the quality of professional development um, is not always consistent. And what um, Thomas Gusky, um, a, a, a well-known researcher, um, scholar about professional development, talked about how the, the direction we should be moving in is having teachers talking to other teachers about professional development and really sharing what, what they see is quality professional development, what, what they what they see as um, best practices um, in their classroom, what's working. And that's, that's the direction we should be moving. So that's, that's kind of where I ended my, um, my work with the teachers union uh, with helping other teachers create professional development for, for each other. Um, and that, that was really rewarding for me. And I was very lucky to uh, be able to come over to the teacher standards board then and um, have an executive director who also shared that, that desire to, to have um, professional development continue in professional learning. And, and by law, we have a statutory responsibility to provide quality professional development at the Teacher Standards Board, uh, written into our, our administrative rules. So um, I'm very happy to continue this work and extremely happy that my project that was that was assigned to me was the model code of ethics for educators and uh, it's the model code of ethics for educators is a, a really great set of standards and guiding uh, prompts for reflection and unfortunately we find that a lot of teachers uh, are not comfortable with having those conversations with the model code of ethics for educators so um, our what I've been talking with uh, people like Fred Lane with Dr. Troy Hutchings um, and learning that the best way to really get the model code of ethics being to, to be used is showing teachers that they should be talking to each other. And, and that's, that's the, the, the basis of all this professional development for model code of ethics is how do we get people talking about this and how do we get them having these conversations about ethical dilemmas so they feel comfortable in making decisions and creating a standard of care for for this profession and for their communities. So yeah. that's, that's kind of where, where we're headed with, with the, the professional development that we're doing at the Teacher Standards Board. I really like that introduction, RJ, because it highlights a few of the things that I've learned as a principal myself as well. Um, my teachers did a much better job implementing something if one of us, you know, one of the teachers in the building was sharing that with them. They did a much better job of being engaged if one of their peers was, was talking about something. Um, if we, you know, brought in somebody else, they, that served a very distinct purpose of saying, this is how the rest of the world is doing it. And there's benefit in that, but then getting the teachers to be effective in having those conversations about whether it was instruction or ethics or whatever was much more valuable when the conversation continued with the group of teachers rather than just the expert coming back again and again, which I've done both and the teachers had a much better time. And it's also the reason why I started my podcast. I wasn't happy with the professional development that I was getting as a principal. And I thought, 
there's tons of great principals out there. I should be out there talking to them. And so that's what I did. And that was seven years ago and over 400 episodes later, that's, you know, that's what I've been able to learn so quickly. I call it learning in dog years because I learned those things so fast um, because I was asking for what I needed help with right in the moment from people who were doing the actual work. So <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about the model code of ethics and, um, and it's not something that you created, but it's something that um, that you learned about, and now you're really excited for everybody to use it. Is that a fair way of of understanding that? Yeah, that's that's ab- absolutely. Most professions have a code of ethics, and and, and have had a code of ethics for many many years. Uh, American Medical Association, I believe, had their first one in 1847. I believe uh, it was uh, quite some time ago. So I mean, it's uh, the the teaching profession uh, hasn't had one until 2015. That's some time in between. And that code of ethics really just helps uh, create a standard of care for the people that the teachers work with. And it was created by educators, uh, for educators, and our standards board adopted it in June of 2018. Ever since it was created, uh, our standards board has been bringing people in like Dr. Troy Hutchings or Fred Lane and um, talking to educators about it. We adopted it, which means educators should be using it, but we um, know that it's very important not to just um, force the usage of something. We want, we want people to see the, the benefit of using it. And that's why we're really um, spending a lot of time on professional development. Uh, and professional development doesn't have to look like a classroom. And that's what we're really trying to explore our professional development is a mixture of a professional learning environment as well as uh, micro-credentials mixed in with it. We don't know if this will work. We're, we're trying it out, right? I mean, that's we have to hear from educators what they say. We're trying to work with other people about what would it look like to just have some animated shorts um, with, with Code of Ethics. So we have a university that helped create some animated shorts on ethical dilemmas. And then we always end it with um, a call to action. So what would you do in this situation, right? And, and I'll definitely um, send over some, some links that, that you guys can uh, share. It's really just, it's been fun trying to explore and, and hear educators' feedback and then hearing what they feel it should look like. I've had a chance to work with you in, in terms of putting the model code of ethics for educators in front of your teachers and, and your administrators. And I want to point out one thing I think you guys do particularly well is that you reach out to your teacher training programs and try to find ways for them to incorporate it into the curricula for those up and coming teachers, which is exactly the kind of prophylactic work you want to be doing. Do want to do a quick shout out to the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and Certification, better known as NASTEC, which led the initiative to develop the Model Code of Ethics for Educators in 2014 and 2015. That's a great organization. They've, they've done a lot of good work in this. My question for you would be this. What have you seen among your teachers in Hawaii in terms of their uptake of the model code of ethics? How are they incorporating it into the work they do? What kinds of, what kinds of conversations are you hearing? Yeah, um, you're right. NASDAQ is a really great um, place to, 
to talk about model code and they have some amazing resources available for people as well. Um, and some good, great blogs. Including, too. if I may, um, uh, a free copy of the model code of ethics right on their website. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so in, in Hawaii, what we've been able to see is be prior, prior to the pandemic, we were going out to um, all the islands and we were going out to the teachers sharing the model code with them, talking to them about um, educator ethics. And it, like many places, um, what we find is that people have a, everybody has a different definition of what educator ethics are. Um, everybody has a different definition of what ethics are, really. Um, but but educator ethics in particular, whenever we ended a, a, a workshop or a conversation, and of course, you can you can um, speak to this as well, Fred, because you came out and we're, thankfully were able to do some workshops with us. Everybody left the workshop with a positive, um, I guess, positive direction uh, about yes, let's have these conversations, let's let's do this. And it's, I think, um, the other thing that people left with, which which is what I really loved, is that they always they always had more questions. And so leaving with positive energy, leaving with questions to me as an, as a former classroom teacher shows they're engaged. Right. And, and that's, that's what I was looking for is, are you asking those questions when you leave the session? Do you have that energy to use it? And because if you don't, you're not going to use it, right. You're not going to, you're, you're not going to incorporate this into your everyday work. We were able to interview some teachers in Hawaii and they told us that teachers were more focused on the code of conduct, which is different from a code of ethics, because that is what is um, mandated um, at the beginning of the year. And you have to sign off that you will be following this. So it's policy. Um, what, what people don't understand is that by having a license in Hawaii, you're also agreeing to use the code of ethics. <laughs> and I'm very curious what they're going to say about how it looks with this pandemic, um, how, um, how ethics look after all the things that have happened um, in DC recently, um, and the need to, to have these ethical dilemma discussions, and how they're going to bring that into the classroom. Because uh, it's very easy to to, to not. And it's very easy to focus on curriculum and the standards. And, and, but it's important as educators to bring that into the classroom and to not shy away from that. And what I feel and what the task force has said so far is that the model code of ethics provides a way to have those discussions because it provides a set of standards that could be used as prompts for reflection. And so that I'm, I'm really excited about those conversations that we're going to be having with educators this year with all that has happened. And the thing you mentioned before about there being energy, um, it's actually just a lot more fun to do these simulations and talk about what is actually a decision that somebody else made and how you could make a better decision. Because we all like to think we would make a better decision in the moment. And so it's actually a lot more fun to have those conversations about these things that yeah. we would never personally do, but then we could know how to solve somebody else's problem. And it makes you feel like, oh yeah, I can do this. And it's a lot of fun to have those kind of conversations with people. It's, it's allowing people to be vulnerable too, right? I, I really am thankful to have such a great executive director. Dr. Lynn Hammonds has encouraged us to create a um, educator ethics website. 
So we have an HTSB educator ethics website that, that we're creating. And the, the whole focus of that website is to post ethical dilemmas. And um, every ethical dilemma will, be, will end with some um, guiding questions. Um, so trying to get people to think about these, um, these ethical dilemmas and think about what would they do or what I think uh, Dr. Troy Hutchings always, always ends his presentations with is what, what could possibly go wrong, right? And that's, a, that's such a fun question to, to, to think about and to discuss because um, those that have been in the classroom for a while know the things that have gone wrong and they can share, you know, countless stories of what, what did go wrong. And um, the, then the fun part is, okay, so next time, what could we do? right? And what kind of conversations could we have? And so, of course, it's that idea of what could we do next time? Um, but that also sets up um, a proactive approach, right? If, if we're having these discussions, we're thinking about um, how we can be proactive in our decision-making. Charlotte Danielson has famously been known for saying that teachers make over 3,000 non-trivial decisions a day. I can't imagine how many more they're making now in an online environment. Well, let me throw the compliment back at you, RJ, because in the process of working with you uh, over the last couple of years on various programs, it's evident that you are driven by a desire to make sure that people are engaged and that they're asking these kinds of questions. And so I think that, you know, if you're experiencing some success with that, it has a lot to do with the attitude that you bring to it. Uh, one of the things that I have enjoyed talking with you about is how technology is making the moral dilemma more challenging, right? And right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an endless, endless source of uh, of inquiry, as Jethro and I have talked about. Like this, this podcast will go on till we die. But the point being that you know, you've had front line classroom experience. You've worked with teachers unions. You've dealt with this in a variety of different capacities. So let's start off with a general question about what your personal experience was with technology in the classroom and, and how that influences how you view it today as someone who's helping teachers grapple with this. Technology to me in the classroom as a teaching tool was an overhead projector. And when I say overhead projector, I'm not talking about one that you plugged a computer in. I'm talking about one that the light bulb costs more than the actual overhead projector itself. So when the light bulb burnt out, you had to buy a whole new overhead projector. Technology was different back then. It was still technology, but technology was, was not, um, computers were not the, uh, a teaching tool really in, in the classroom. And, um, but that changed in the course of just two years. We ended up having a laptops for learning program where families got together. We found some grants and we were able to get laptops for all the students in the classroom. And that was all they were allowed to use. They weren't allowed to use textbooks and uh, notebooks. We were, they were only allowed to use. And it was really, really hard um, because that's, that was just new, but it was, it was something that, um, you know, it, it made me realize that technology is constantly changing, constantly, and you have to keep up. And 
as as I grew as an educator and into um, different classrooms, we we learned um, more ways to stay connected. We learned more ways to share information with families. Twenty years later, you're starting to see it's it's still being used to share information with families. It's still being used to stay connected. Um, almost a little too connected sometimes, but it, yeah, and that's. And that's where that's where code of ethics definitely a code of ethics really is important, right? To to be mindful of of those connections you're making and those multiple relationships that that you are that you're forming. Because as as we know as educators, um, the stronger the relationship you have with your students, the the directly correlates with the the better academic performance they're going to have as students. So it's it's important to to be mindful that you, you need to create those strong relationships, but at the same time, be mindful of, of, of how you're doing that. And, um, and um, the code of ethics really helps you with creating those boundaries, right. That are, that are important. And um, I mean, and it's, it's interesting because what, what I'm finding when I talk to educators about, about this now, now 20 years later, right. And um whether it's a preparation program, whether it's uh, educators in the classroom right now, what what we're finding is that they call it common sense, but um, a lot of people have different um, backgrounds, right? Different different morals, different values, and so one person's common sense is is differs from other people's, varies, right? And um, uh, having a professional um, set of standards, a professional ethics, helps you all kind of have one place you can go back to. The per- the point of this is that if you do need this common language, right, you need a common set of assumptions to work from because, you know, the old joke about common sense is it's just not that right. common. So we have a real hard time talking through what we mean and what our expectations are. And, you know, I think this raises an interesting philosophical question, which you, you may or may not want to comment on, which is that if we're dealing with 50 states right? 50 state teaching communities, and even within that localities, which Jethro will know much better than I do, you know, trying to find common values for that disparate, a group of teachers and communities is enormously challenging. And I know that NASTEC has been working hard to um, get the MCE adopted across the country. Um, And I think you guys have been great to be at the forefront of that have you have on a state level have you seen those kinds of issues arise in terms of people accepting the underlying premise of the code people are skeptical right away because it's like i was saying earlier they're connecting it to a code of conduct and it is not a code of conduct right it's very different from a code of conduct conduct is behaviors code of ethics is more choices because it's connected to a code of conduct people automatically think okay well this is a this is something that's going to be a get gotcha type of thing the way the model code was created was not to be something that's a gotcha in fact people like dr troy hutchings always say that it's very difficult to violate the model code of ethics for educators because there's so so much gray area in them because it is set up to be um, a set of guidelines prompts for, for reflecting so um i guess what we're hearing so get to, to get back to your question in our state 
that's how it was first looked at for over the, you know, so like we were, like I said, we had about three or four years um, that, that we've been doing workshops um, and um, our executive director was really forward thinking enough to, at the, at the very beginning, bring in groups like the teachers union to, to see that it is not a gotcha type of um, uh, framework and constantly go out to um, not only the teachers union, but to, to be invited by the teachers union in their annual Institute days. So um, every year, um, now it's in February, but every year um, the teachers union has been inviting the teacher standards board to do presentations on licensing. But over the past four years, um, we've been doing presentations on the model code of ethics for educators as well. So this is, this is a union day then that offers workshops and people can choose which workshops to go to. And we've been offering um, these model code of ethics for educator uh, workshops and it's people attend them. And these are the workshops I was talking about that people are leaving with energy, positive energy and with questions. And um, I will say there, there are the workshops that we have with um, elected union officials that do question it, but it has never been a, we're going to actively work against it type of conversation. It's always been a tell me more or let's learn some more about it conversation. And I think that's because it's always from the beginning, um, the teacher standards board has always tried to incorporate all these different stakeholders. Um, so in our state, it's a little, um, little different than other states where we have one district. Um, it's, it's one unified district in our state. So we have one HR department for all the DOE schools and charter schools. Um, so it's, it's, I guess the advantage in that is that we're able to invite one centralized state office to these meetings and hear what they have to say. Um, and it's, it's um, the challenge becomes, as, as many states will find, that the people that are in these state offices aren't always the same throughout the years. So um, we're finding that we need to have a consistent message because every year it takes kind of like a, um, a reorientation, making sure people are, are aware of this, making sure people are seeing the uses for it. And what I'm learning from the task force is that we need to make sure that it's a, it's a teacher's voice saying that. And um, we were very lucky that the, the um, director who trains principals in our state uh, we, do, we do not license principals in our state. Um, they are certified by the department um, and the, the private school and the charter school have their own um, system as well. But the, that, that director is very interested in incorporating um, the model code of ethics for educators because that's one of their guiding principles is to have um, ethical decisions. RJ, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, the, in the practice of medicine, they have the Hippocratic Oath which uh, is succinctly summarized, at, summarized as first do no harm. And it seems that that's what education needs as well. You know, maybe an Aristotelian oath or something like that, that is, you know, I don't know what it could be to put it as succinctly as first do no harm. 
but it seems that there's a lot of opportunity for us to to have something that says, okay, if I'm an educator, then I'm going to like a doctor first do no harm. And then, you know, go from there on the other decisions that we make. And what I appreciate about what you said earlier is that it's not a designed to be a gotcha. And you identified the difference between a code of conduct and a code of ethics. And I think those things are so important to bring attention to that so that we can have the conversation appropriately about what it means and that helps get everybody on the same page as well. Um, in your work as, you know, being part of the standards board, what are the leading technology related issues that uh, you're seeing as it relates to teacher licensing? Social media is definitely an, an issue because there are, it feels like every day there's a new social media platform. And I think what we're finding is that teachers sometimes believe or and, and it's not just teachers all educators believe that if you do something on your social media that it is private and that other people aren't going to see it that other people aren't going to question your professionalism if you did it after your work hours there's this thing about code of ethics that that I'm that I'm learning about is that most code of ethics are a self-regulating type of thing, where it's self-policing, self-regulating of the profession. And so, specifically to your question, what technology? Social media is probably the biggest one. Um, not that it's a social media is a bad thing, but just the um, the issue being um, yeah. cognizant of your professionalism slash private life, because it's never just one or the other. Um, what you post um, will come back to you. What, you, what you're um, following, what you, the things that you like, the things that you comment on, um, accounts you create, um, all these things are, are connected to you. There's a professor out here in Hawaii that's connected to the University of Hawaii Research Group. Her name is Chuck Wynn, and she does a really great presentation about, I don't want to call it cyber traps because that's been taken. There's, she does just, yeah, just a little bit. She did this presentation that I, I loved back in 2013 or 2014 to a bunch of teachers where she said she actually had these little pieces of aluminum foil that she handed out to everybody. And she said, okay, make some designs. Some, just be pretty with it, folding the designs. And then she said, okay, everybody open it back up. Imagine that what you do on the internet are these, you're making these lines in the aluminum foil. Now, everybody try to flatten all those lines out. Make it back to how it, it used to be. And that was her visualization for your, what you do on the internet is very difficult to erase. And the lines that you're making are the, the different things that you do, your activity on the internet. And as a computer forensic specialist, I'm sure you could come up with other analogies or visualizations for what it looks like when you go on the internet and how difficult it is to erase those lines. 
RJ, that's such a great example. I know Truck actually, and I've seen her do that demonstration and it's just brilliant. And I love watching the people who are just like so intently trying to smooth it out and it just doesn't go away. But I was also a classics major uh, as an undergrad and I'll never forget being shown some slides from uh, various archeological digs where thousands of years later, you can see the footprints of people who walked, you know, millennia before us. And it it feels a little heavy handed, but in honesty, that is what the internet is like. It is extraordinarily difficult to get content off. And, you know, the thing I want to say to people, and, and, and I have as much as they don't like to hear it, is what part of social don't you understand, right? It's you're putting this out into the world. And once you digitize information, your ability to restrict the copying and redistribution of that information is extraordinarily limited. And so I'm I'm not surprised that that rose to the top of your heap in terms of the potential problems that the teachers are displaying. If if I could also add, there's a site where teachers are selling things that they've created and can be printed out and cut out or laminated, and it and it's it's a great concept, but could also be risky, right? If you're selling something that's not yours. Um, if, and if you are a teacher that bought it from somebody who it wasn't theirs. So it's, there's a lot of, like I, I go back to the model code, there's, there's self-regulating that needs to, to take place. And, um, and so one of the things that I'm, I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking some um, night classes right now and I'm trying to learn how to apply critical thinking and the different, um, you know, like Paulo Freire's uh, critical thinking and um, uh, bell hooks, right? Um, the critical thinking about how do I apply that to the model code and how, do, how does that connect and overlap and should it connect and overlap? And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm exploring some of that with some night classes that I'm taking and, and um, learning about. And it's, it's really helped me with, with, um, the direction that I'm going with this uh, and just made, made me more excited. I hope that we can um, develop into more critical thinkers um, that I, that I hope that um, the model code is not something that anybody has ever said, go memorize these 86 standards. Um, it's, it's supposed to be something that helps us develop into these, just become a more critical thinker about, about the things we do and say. Well, that's a phrase actually that has popped up a number of times on this podcast, as as Jethro will agree. I, I guess the kind of closing question, RJ, that I would put out to you, right? You're you're deeply into this implementation of the model code and rolling out these various programs and so forth. Have you reached a point where you feel like the model code is making a difference? And if so, how are you getting fewer cases? Uh, yeah, oh gosh, that's so metrics, right? Well, um, how do we how do we measure if something is working, right? Yeah, how do you, how do you measure if something is working? And um, it, it, the quick quick the quick answer is uh, we we don't have a metric. Um, the only thing that has so I've only been with the standards board for a little over a year now, year and a half or so. Um, so 
what what I've learned in this year and a half um, is, and are we moving in the right direction? Is this the right thing to to talk to teachers about? Is it making a difference? Uh, so one one measure that I'm using is the people that took the the class that we offered last spring. Um, that was Proethica, and it was it was also reflections, and it was classroom discussions. All of those people signed up for my next class this spring. Shows me they're interested. Shows me they want to continue this conversation. Um, not all of them got in, so I, I feel bad about that because we had limited spaces because other people were interested too. Um, but everybody showed interest. Um, and whether it was in the, the eval or whether it was in um, just signing up and registering. So that, that's one thing. Um, another metric, um, and I guess these are, these are very qualitative, right? Um, but another metric or another measure is that the union continues inviting us back. In fact, um, this February, they were very specific that they wanted um, model code on every island. Um, of course, that'll be virtual, but but still, they wanted a model code workshop on every island. So it's it's gotten to a point now where we're not saying, hey, we got this workshop, are you interested? Um, now it's, we need this on every island. So that's, that's great. This. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. And, and the other thing that I'd add to it is that if people want to come back to some sort of professional training, that's a huge sign that you're doing something right. And, yeah. and furthermore, the unions are, are smart in wanting this to happen because that means less of these kinds of issues that they have to deal with later. And, and that's in everybody's benefit because the teachers aren't getting, you know, bad press or bad um, opportunities and they don't have to deal with it as well. So that's a benefit for them that they can focus on the other parts of their work that they want to do. I've spent seven years working for a teacher's union. What I, what I noticed is that um, a lot of unions across the country um, set up these environments where teachers and principals um, can have conversations, right? Uh, albeit about collective bargaining, whatever, whatever the it, work, workplace issues, right? Workplace, work environments, what, whatever it ends up being. I see what, what I see the model code as is um, talking points. So like the union sets up these environments, sets up these structures, sets up these opportunities, but there's no script really that, that the union is saying, say this at this meeting. Um, and, and it may be different in different states. Maybe they, are, they do have some scripts, but I've never heard of any. Um, the model code can be that not a script, but actual prompts for reflection. And when I say wide variety or far reaching um, set of prompts, it, I can't think of an issue that the model code doesn't address. Um, so sorry to, to interrupt, but I just, I just feel like it's, um, if you were to talk to a union about this, or if unions are listening to this podcast, the model code could be something that, um, that is language you could use at these, the, in these environments that you set up for labor relations. Well, and I think that's great, RJ, and, and certainly um, I am very interested in finding somebody from a union, either a state union or a national union, to talk to us about some of these issues. Be and, and for me, it's conflicted, right? Because I'm, I'm 
relatively progressive in general, very pro-labor, pro-union. I also spent 10 years on the Burlington School Board, which gave me a, a slightly more jaundiced view of unions. And one of the things that you know I think helped fuel my interest in the cyber traps for educators was the conflict that, or not conflict, but the situation that unions found themselves in when sometimes they, they were bound to defend somebody who had done something that was relatively indefensible. And yet the very terms of their contract and their concern, not for the bad guy, but for the not so bad guy in the future, made them very aggressive in their defense. And presumably you have some experience with this uh, from the union perspective. Um, I think these are issues we need to continue to talk through, but I would say to your point that for unions, involvement in and education in the model code could diminish some of the instances that they find themselves facing. And they, they have some great micro-credentials. Like that's what I was saying earlier, right? Our, our professional development we're doing this spring is a, um, I guess, a mashup of the NEA micro-credentials. They have eight micro-credentials that, that, um, that are open source right now. If you look at them, um, of course, you have to be a, an NEA member to have them scored by NEA, but, but the, the content is open source, which is really amazing of them to, to share this content with so many people. Um, it, it also shows that it's, that it's important to them. I believe uh, Rochelle Patterson from NEA um, has has done a great job of of sharing this with multiple groups. We're very thankful that that our local NEA affiliate, um, the Hawaii State Teachers Association, um, has agreed to to work with us on this professional development because we obviously we wouldn't use the NEA micro credentials if we didn't have their their blessing or their 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 agreement to work with us on this. Um, but the it's it's a great way to connect to the union, but it's also a, the unions. Um, really forward thinking of trying to educate people on on a great resource uh, to be used to be proactive to your point. Yeah, well, RJ, I really appreciate you being part of the Cybertraps podcast today. It's been great getting to know you and hear your perspective. And I just want to say thank you again for being here. This was really great, RJ. I'm glad we were able to uh, have you on and span the time zones and put us all together. Um, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. I guess, Jethro, we should throw in cyber ethics. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cyber Traps podcast on all your favorite podcast players, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us with topic suggestions or potential guests. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening here at the end, you must have enjoyed this podcast. If that's the case, please feel free to give us a rating and review a five-star rating. Would be great. We really appreciate it. And that helps people find the show as well. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time 
When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.